0: Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from British Columbia and Nashville, Tennessee. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, and please enjoy the show.
1: The mycelium is in the ground for decades, sometimes hundreds of years. It's one cell wall thick surrounded by all these microbes, many of which want to consume it, but the mycelium is very smart in setting up an immune system that allows it to stay resident within the isotherm above freezing, below 110 degrees. And in that isotherm is the immunological window that it's evolved. And from that immune system of the mushrooms, we can benefit.
0: Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with Isaac Brock, lead singer of the band Modest Mouse. Their 2015 song, The Best Room, is a critique of typical Western lifestyles and includes the fungi-centric lyric, I'm gonna bury my head in the woods right now, scan for some mycelium and bring a little bit back to town. Also joining us is renowned mycologist Paul Stamets. Paul is perhaps the world's best-known mushroom expert, having written half a dozen books on the topic and been profiled in the chart-topping Netflix documentary Fantastic Fungi. The focus of Paul's 40 plus year career in mycology is the Northwest native fungal genome mycelium. Research shows that during life's long history on our planet, it is only those organisms that paired with fungi that were the ones to survive. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is The Best Room, Upgrading Civilization Through Partnerships with Fungi. Hello, Isaac and Paul. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank
2: you for having. Me. Hey, how are you doing? Man? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. Good, a little worse for the wear. I hopped on the crew bus last night in order to make it here safe and sound. and Those people are pirates. They drink a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: is this song somehow connected to an experience with UFOs? Uh,
2: I, yeah, yeah. It actually is. It actually is. It's uh, it's after I landed from. Uh, so I was flying from Montana to. Um, Phoenix to master a record called the Lonesome Crowded West. And now we got put in a holding pattern and I'm looking out the window and it turns out, are you familiar with the Phoenix lights? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a, a UFOs event. Well, that was the night and I was on a plane and so I, you know, I initially see basically just a discoloration. I'm kind of looking at it, I'm like, what is that? And then a fighter pilot gets interested in it, which is to say someone dispatched a, a jet and it was kind of scrambling this discoloration, then I noticed a second one, and a second fighter pilot, and then a helicopter, and every, you know, and there's a, by some at some point there's about seven of these things. I'm in a holding pattern, and I think it probably, I mean I I kind of lost track of time, but I mean maybe maybe it was 15 minutes. Maybe it was, you know, uh, that I was actually on the same level, kind of going by you know, doing these little loops. And I got to see the whole darn thing from a vantage point that when when they use government scientists to explain it away from like oh everyone who saw this sighting was on the ground and there was this time of day and this and that. i was like i was i was actually slightly above it um <laughs> and yeah they, they did they ended up lighting up they were appeared to be you know obviously independent structures from one another or whatever vessels but after i landed after that event my night kept getting interesting so the song is only it starts taking place after that event
0: Okay, so the beyond the lyrics about mycelium that I quoted in the intro, I want to read some of my favorites and hopefully you can illuminate how this connects to the Phoenix Lights experience. You sing, the best room they have is the last room you want. And also these Western concerns, we beg while we chew. I love that one. Um, What is the combined meaning here that, that you're trying to get across and how it connects to the Phoenix Lights?
2: That's the thing this song doesn't actually have anything to do with the Phoenix lights. It's like I said, after I hit the ground after that, I, my initial plan was like, you know, I was in my early twenties. I was like, I'm just going to go to the studio and sleep on the roof. This seems like a a reasonable thing to do. And, you know, I'm walking and it turns out the area is much shittier than I thought. Mm -hmm. The idea of climbing on the roof. I'm like, Oh, this is a bad idea. There's the cops are going to get called. So I, I go and I find the cheapest hotel I can. And they give me a room and the room they give me I go to it and there's actual police tape crime scene it's <laughs> it's padlocked it's got it's got crime scene tape all over it and I'm like you are aware that this is a uh, the crime scene and they're like oh didn't didn't even blink just reached for another key and handed it to me <laughs> um and then I went in there and that thing it was basically a crime scene that they forgot to put tape on my goodness yeah
0: can you tell us about that lyric? I'm going to bury my head in the woods right now. Scan for some mycelium and bring a little back to town.
2: That's just basically lazy, uh, lazy songwriting, which is to say, it has nothing to do with the other part of the story. It's just what I enjoy doing. I like uh, you know looking l- looking for edible like chanterelles, um, morels. L- looking mm. for chanterelles, it's kind of one of my uh, my big hobbies because a I can do it. I-, I can identify them almost without fail. Mm. There's the fault you know the false chanterelle, but um, uh, yeah, I just tacked that into the song so I could sing that part. Okay. And uh, it has nothing to do with any linear story. It's just kind of a free-floating little moment of a song in another song.
0: Sure. So you were well aware of Paul's work, because also I understand your brother studied under Paul many years ago.
2: That's what I'm told. And I think 99, He at uh, Evergreen, uh, Ansel Viskaya was his name. He since passed because he was a uh, Mount Rainier got him. He got got by an avalanche. He was like a boss rescue dude. He knew better. Like, you know, to go camping on a you know, ice sheet or something in uh mid spring is iffy at best, you know. Mm. Interestingly enough, I didn't realize that he when he was studying under you, Paul, I did not realize this probably till after he passed away and I was reading my Selenium Running. And just just flapping my gums about all the amazing information into it. And finally, my dad's just like, oh, yeah, your, your brother's studying under him. And I remember um, my brother, uh, you know, mm-hmm. living at my house uh, with me and trying to cultivate mushrooms. But I, I didn't think that it was actually, like, because he was being educated on it. You know, I was like, that's what we're doing, I guess, in, mm-hmm. in the basement now. So I, I, I do wish I'd gotten a chance to talk to him about his experiences uh, with you.
1: Yeah, well, mushrooms are the great teachers. I'm just one person in a long lineage of thought leaders who are passing this knowledge forward, but we're all students of nature and mycelium is, has a vast intelligence underneath our feet that can inform us in so many ways. And it's surprising and I'm really happy and excited that mushrooms have become the zeitgeist of our time. The metaphor of mycelium connection, community, but it just keeps on getting bigger and more wonderful. So some of the things I'd love to share with you, Isaac and Matt and your audience and the, the junction, the, the convergence of mycelium and music, I think is a nice uh, nexus point to discuss. You know, the great thing about music and musicians is they bring people together as a community. People come to, to hear great musicians such as yourself. But many relationships develop. I just came from Burning Man. I'm still kind of dusty, right? I saw the traffic. It looked looked like you could see it from space. Oh, my God. Some of my friends were 12 hours in line. Fortunately, I was about five hours. Mm-hmm. I left a day early. But even the Burning Man festivals and music festivals, you know, from so many musicians, um, Neil Young being an example, many other musicians and festivals are now having educational components, so Lightning in the Bottle, you know, Burning Man, many of these festivals. And he's saying, hey, we have an opportunity here, not only are people coming together to listen to music, but this is the time for our culture to become better educated about science. And so this program is a perfect convergence of those two. So one of the things I'd like to share with you, which I think is a kind of blew my mind. you know, I've been growing mycelium for over 40, 45 years i'm 67 i don't feel 67 Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i am um just lots and lots of uh, species of 700 to a thousand species in culture and you know i did a lot of psilocybin mushrooms i had a dea license for many years at the evergreen state college so i could legally grow and study psilocybin mushrooms i was extremely careful and still am in that regard i have a motto nature provides i don't right so they're out in nature, folks. You know, they're, you can find them on your own, mm. but you have to be careful because of the poisonous species. But one of the epiphanies I've had recently in all the years I've been studying mycelium under electron microscope, and I think most everyone knows what mycelium is. Just go outside to any log or stick on the ground, tip it over, you'll see mycelium. It's this fine filamentous network. And it's been estimated up to eight miles of mycelium in a single cubic inch. These are very, very fine filaments. think of that. Eight miles of mycelium in a cubic inch. That's amazing. More than a thousand species of bacteria can be in that cubic inch also. So there is a constant communication and guilds of cooperating organisms are coming together. The mycelium sort of is a mantle, the foundation of the ecosystem. And then it selects the cooperating organisms that help the plants ultimately grow to create the debris fields that feed the mycelium. So there are smart, they are deterministic. They're not gonna engage pathogens that destroy the ecosystem. They're gonna engage cooperators that help the ecosystem because the commons is benefited. And the lesson that I've learned is biodiversity is our biosecurity. Moreover, mycodiversity is our biosecurity. So the epiphany I had with this background is these fine filaments of mycelium. It was recently discovered that sound waves stimulate mycelium to grow and I started looking into this and i started playing around with it and it turns out that low frequency sound waves which travel a lot further than high frequency we, we all know that mm-hmm. but these low frequency sound waves stimulate mycelium to grow and then i just had this kind of a stoner epiphany putting these things together maybe i shouldn't say that <laughs> um, <laughs> and i realized oh my god when lightning strikes And it's been folklore in First Nations of North America, in Europe, in Russia, in Japan, lightning strikes, mushrooms form. Well, we know now that's actually true. Up to 50,000 volts of electricity stimulated in the shiitake logs can massively increase their yield. Hmm. So I thought, okay, we know that electricity stimulates mycelium mushrooms to form from mycelium. But now I thought, now, wait a second, let's think about this. When lightning strikes, or before lightning strikes, you hear thunder. The rolling waves of sound, low-frequency thunder on the horizon. Now, if you had evolved for literally hundreds of millions of years and you were in competition, you would awaken to the impending rain event, getting ready to absorb water. Okay. So as a low-frequency would stimulate mycelium to grow, it would then be ready for the ensuing rainfall and perhaps lightning strikes, less frequently, obviously, but the rain would come. So when I realized that sound waves stimulated mycelium to grow, the epiphany I have is that nature is always listening via mycelium. Mycelium is like strings on a violin, strings on a piano, strings on a guitar. Mm -hmm. These are filaments that are sensitive to vibrations. And so that would mean then when the musicians come together in the forest or at a festival, and Isaac is playing his music, not only the people listening, The mycelium is listening. And it may well be that the mycelium is responding with joyous, bountiful nutrients. Because as the mycelium grows, it moves more nutrients in the ecosystem. So that being said, then there's more flowers, there's more berries, there's more nuts, there's more food. Mm -hmm. So people coming together and celebrating with music, nature is responding with the mycelial networks being invigorated and endorsing up-channeling the nutrients to benefit the commons of the people who are coming together to celebrate. Now, th- this is where science and spirituality come to a convergence here.
0: I love that spot.
1: And so interesting to me is the skeptics about us out there, you know, thinking about these very poetic philosophical ideas. So many of these ideas now have been validated by science. Like, oh, mushrooms form or lightning strikes. Oh, that's, you know, that's just folklore. No, it's true. Oh, you know, sound stimulating mycelium to grow We know that's true. So think about that. When we celebrate nature in community, with heart, with soul, with music, with happiness, nature's happy. Nature's happy that we're there. And if we honor nature and we pay attention, then nature will support our mission even more so. And so I, I think this, um, we're at this amazing stage in the evolution of humans where I think there's a quantum leap in consciousness, and the work on with psilocybin mushrooms, which I've been involved in for a long time, many decades. There's 101 clinical trials, registered at clinicaltrials.gov. If, if you ever wanna bring a drug to market, you have to be on clinicaltrials.gov. 101 clinical trials on psilocybin registered. Now think mm. of that. They have to go through what's called IRB boards, institutional review boards, physicians, other scientists, and you know, is is it safe? Is it addressing a critical need? And can it be put into practice? Can it be scaled? These are some of the primary metrics that the review boards look at. And it checks every one of those boxes. And there was just a, a recent study on alcohol use disorder, just published in JAMA Psychiatry. So again, any skeptics out there, go to JAMA Journal of the American Medical Association and they found a statistically significant reduction in alcohol use with binge drinkers. So, Isaac last night Mm. in Nashville. Right, exactly. (laughs) It may have have needed a few of this, but they found out that that binge drinkers, four drinks for women, women, five drinks for men per day, and then the, the habitual use of alcohol substantially was reduced if they had two sessions of psilocybin. With therapy, compared to therapy alone, are these
2: heavy heavy sessions or like microdose sessions?
1: No, these are these are heavy sessions, but we can talk about microdose. I do know
2: uh, a number of people who have quit very serious addictions to other things using psilocybin treatment in a controlled Absolutely. environment. Absolutely,
1: another article came out I think April twenty second this year on opioid use disorder with similar results, and this other study I mentioned is sort of a meta study observationally. And there is only one psychedelic that was associated with the reduction of opioid use, not LSD, you know, not ketamine, not MDMA, nothing, only psilocybin. Psilocybin seems to be uniquely positioned in being able to help us create new neurological pathways right. that can break out of the habits that have been deleterious.
0: Why do you suppose that is? That it's psilocybin over other hallucinogens? Because
1: it's a neurotransmitter.
0: Psilocybin itself
1: is. Is it? Yeah. Well, psilocybin dephosphorylates into psilocin. Psilocybin is rock stable. Uh, psilocin is very very fragile. But when you consume psilocybin, it dephosphorylates and psilocin uh, becomes a serotonin agonist. What that means is basically it substitutes with the and docks with the 5HT2A receptors and becomes the contact fluid, you might say, and opens up these pathways. Okay. And what has happened in the narrative that many scientists now are thinking is a strong theory is that when you have these epiphanies of a high dose, you have an opportunity of reset your, your neurological foundation sort of back to the beginning. And when you have these epiphanies, you think differently, you're in awe of nature, the unanimity of being. We're all connected. And then why am I doing this? Why Why is this drug controlling my life and, you know, the other drugs? And so you have an opportunity of sort of, in a sense, almost being like reborn neurologically. But then we found that the study at Johns Hopkins that was so interesting is 14 months after the experience of a high dose of psilocybin, re-remembering the experience was therapeutically significant. Oh, really? 70% of the people had positive experiences, 30% of the people did not. The negative experience did not extend beyond the experience itself, so they said, oh, not for me. Mm -hmm. The 70% of people who had this epiphany experience, re-remembering it brought back joy and peace and the sense of gratitude and euphoria and connection. So this is why we think macrodosing followed by microdosing is probably the, the modality that's going to have the best benefit because it's just like muscle memory. you you played a guitar, you put it down for a long time. Do you pick it up again? Right. You know, you get better. So end up riding a bike. I mean, once you learn how to ride a bike, you kind of never forget how to ride a bike, you know, it may not be as coordinated, but you can ride a bike. So this idea of being able to revisit those neurological pathways, that gave you such sense of gratitude and connection and Mm -hmm. wanting to make your life better in this sense of love is huge. And so Mm -hmm. has also been associated with reduction of crime, violent crime, larceny, burglary, partner-to-partner violence, statistically significant again. So this is gonna be an extraordinary thing for anyone involved in the the judicial system and law enforcement, Mm -hmm. social workers, et cetera. Psilocybin makes nicer people. Psilocybin reduces crime. Psilocybin reduces criminal behavior. If we can reduce uh, uh, violence due to alcohol, and alcohol for some people stimulates violent behavior. We all know that. But the idea that people could become kinder, more empathetic, uh, less prone to road rage, more forgiving, Mm -hmm. the ripple effect is enormous. Yes. Now, my son is is been in prison for opioid use. What we're seeing now and what we're so excited about with these studies with alcohol and opioid use and other uh, addictive behaviors is there's a really a tremendous opportunity to fundamentally reduce crime, reduce addiction and to create more, you know, kinder, smarter, nicer people. But what is really extraordinary to me is that we have an opportunity right now with the fact that the FDA has declared psilocybin as the least toxic drug they've ever looked at with the most potential for, for psychiatric benefit. Wow. There's no L- LD50 for psilocybin right now. Uh, LD50 being? The lethal death that will kill 50% of rats. Okay. So the LD50 that was published, and I did the conversion on this, is about... I think fifteen kilograms of dried cubensis, rubens*, yeah, cubensis, the salt I have much. That'd <laughs> take a while. You'd have to consume eat. Yeah. <laughs> You'd probably die from dehydration. Right. And, the, and even even that yeah. metric is highly questionable because I think they did eight rats and one of them died. So they just made this made this speculation. So functionally, there is no LD fifty. There is no 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 toxicity of this drug that can have such a powerful medical effect.
0: Paul, you know, earlier you used the phrase quantum leap in the context of psilocybin and what's that done for our species. And I don't know if uh, it's that you're one of the greatest living storytellers or if the story of... Fungi and specifically psilocybin is one of the greatest ever told. But regardless, I was hoping you could regale our listeners with Terence McKenna's stoned ape hypothesis.
1: Thank you for saying hypothesis. So for the audience, a hypothesis is a speculative set of ideas which you know are not yet rooted in fact. A theory is a hypothesis that's now been populated with factual support. And so, of course, there's a kind of a gray mm-hmm. area as a, from a hypothesis to theories. But Terence's hypothesis was during a time of climate change when there was increased loss of forests. Our primate ancestors who were living in the forests then in search for food. And the majority of over 23 primates eat mushrooms. Mushrooms, as Isaac knows, they harvest fly larvae. The majority of primates eat grub larvae of insects as a protein source. Mushrooms grow grub when they get old. Flies are attracted to them, eggs are laid, and, and the mushrooms begin to rot. So they're swarming with little worms and maggots. So the, their idea was that as our primate ancestors experienced the desertification and the climate change, loss of forests, they'd be tracking animals. Animals have scat, dung, mushrooms, slaspe cubensis is glaringly obvious if if you've ever (laughs) collected it. it is huge like light bulbs Mm -hmm. going off you can see them in louisiana and texas and florida going down the highway 55 miles an hour you can see Ecubensis growing in the pastures very easy to find and so imagine you're a clan you're small family groups you're going across you're hunting animals what do you look for footprints and scat you see poop mushrooms are coming out of it you're hungry you grub you eat the mushrooms so that's what they thought would stimulate this kind of perhaps a evolution of the human species they were roundly criticized <laughs> you know it was a, it was it was like you know the, the, the skeptics came out of the woodwork and um i would caution people galileo was criticized be very circumspect mm-hmm. and careful about your skepticism of some of these ideas because i think now we know they're quite, actually, it looks more and more plausible in terms of neurogenesis. And if I can just say, the
0: so the stone-dape hypothesis, this is to account for this missing link or something that can help explain how we made this these huge advances in cognition from our, our primate ancestors, right?
1: Well, yes. Yeah, uh, our species, Homo sapiens, is estimated to be just a little bit more than 200,000 years in age we're a recently evolved species that's
2: really that's actually a lot more recent than i thought
1: yeah magnolia trees have been around for maybe a hundred million years so you know many species that we mm. have today have been resident for tens of millions of years and we've only been in existence for two hundred thousand. what what sparked that sudden split from the hominid tree and evolution it's an unexplained phenomenon so terence and dennis were trying to address this with this hypothesis. So as much fun and criticism as they received, we know now that in fact psilocybin and psilocybin analogs, these are tryptamines related to psilocybin that co-occur, in fact, do stimulate neurons to grow. So we have excellent evidence that gets into a little bit of science here, but they're called map kinases. these are receptor proteins which, when they are docked with, stimulate neurons into regrowth, or cause stem cells to become neurons. In the hippocampus, that's neurogenesis. There's neurogenesis, which is newborn neurons from stem cells. There's neurogeneration, which is just what it sounds like, cells are generating. There's neuroregeneration, when neurons begin to atrophy or slow down, and then regeneration, those atrophying neurons then regrow. And all of this co- ties into what's called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the crosstalk between the synapses, you know, and these nexus points in the neurons are then crosstalking. And that's what we think is happening with psilocybin and making people change their behavior, is that you have more synaptic junctions that are being activated. So you have better an alternative and more enjoyable ways of thinking. You get out of despair. So what I was going to go back to is, and I'll return to neurogenesis. When my son got put into prison, there is a ripple effect of negativity that goes out from criminal behavior. It affects not only the victim and the, the perpetrator and their families, but their neighbors, the community, the city, the state, the nation, the world. So is the opposite. When you meet somebody who's had this incredible experience the ripple effect of positivity you don't want to talk about things that are negative but you really want to talk about things that are positive oh my gosh i know this person who was an addict who was violent they did suicide and their life has been changed those stories have momentum mycelial momentum and like a pebble being put into a pond of positivity it helps society so What we have found now, we published two papers in Nature Scientific Reports, one November 28th, 2021 on microdosing. There's an app called at microdose.me. It's an observational, people respond. We have about 20,000 people now responding on their ways of microdosing, what they're taking, how much, what they're taking it with. The signal that we got that was outside any possibility of expectation was something called the TAP test how many times you can tap your two fingers in 10 seconds. Now, in age, when you're 22, you can tap real fast. When you're 82, you cannot. So it is a validated test for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, traumatic traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. I've had friends who've fallen and hit their heads, and hockey players, football players, and they did do the tap test. Many traumatic brain injuries self-resolve, so the tap test begins to return, not all. Many don't. But some do. But the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, uh, and dementia, it is a slope downhill. And so what we found that was so surprising is that I came up with a stack of sulcybin, niacin, and lion's mane, and about 28 percent, I believe, of the people microdosing were using this stack that I popularized. And the scientists, other scientists, and colleagues did not want to tell, it, show me the data. Until they attack the data three different times. Did you say niacin? Niacin, nicotinic acid, the flushing form. Okay, right. The reason being, I added niacin to microdose because psilocybin is a vasoconstrictor. Okay. Niacin is a vasodilator. So I thought with vasodilation, you can get more of the beneficial properties of psilocybin or psilocin to your neurons. And then I also thought, When you take niacin, you feel you get itchy, yeah, and your nerve endings are excited. And I go, well, that's cool. Let's get psilocybin to your nerve endings. And then neuropathies oftentimes present themselves in a deadening of the fingertips and the toes. So I thought, that's the vascular system collapsing. So, And then I thought, well, this would also be like the ant abuse for alcoholics. If you add enough niacin for a microdose, someone trying to macrodose would have such a horrible experience from the (laughs) niacin flush. Mm. Yeah, they wouldn't want to do that again. So I'm trying to get it so it's a nootropic vitamin that everyone can use without the FDA saying this is a harmful potential drug. Okay. So I'm trying to get the get it, the thresholds down to a point where it would be permissible uh, to be allowed for the universality of use. And that's what I'm trying to enable here. So in our second paper in Nature, we found something extraordinary. In the 55 plus year olds, I'm in that category. The tap test of alternating fingers of frequency went from uh, 48 taps to 69 taps taps in 30 days. Wow. Psilocybin in any other form had no effect, only with a stack of niacin, lion's mane, and psilocybin. And moreover, it's called the, the p-value of significance with 0.004. That means one chance in 250 that it's just random. So with that degree of significance now, and you have to think, this is a, uncontrolled. The amount of psilocybin that people are taking on the black market, the variability and potency. People take it three times, five times a week. Niacin, they're taking it different amounts. Lion's mane taking different amounts. All those would dilute significance. If you talk to any statistician, those variables would go up, not down. So we think we found something that's a game changer is that psilocybin, niacin, and lion's in combination stimulates neurogenesis. And so then we spent literally over a million dollars. Take me to the mat on this, this is true. I spent over a million dollars on the mechanisms of action, the cellular mechanisms of action. Because once we saw the signal of the tap test, I thought, well, how many regions of the brain are involved in tapping your two fingers? Okay. It turned out there's there's six regions of the brain. You visually see, You look at your fingers, you ideate, you send a signal, you get a feedback loop. And there's actually a paper on this and how many reasons the brain are involved in the tap test. So the fact that these 55 plus year olds increased in their psychomotor demonstration cannot be explained by a placebo or expectancy. Mm. But think of this Isaac, you know, as a musician, guitar players, piano players, as they get older, they actually might be able to get better as musicians. (laughs) And so I think microdosing, uh, I said, this also speaks to coordination. What if we reduced 5% Mm -hmm. of the elderly falling and breaking their hips? many of us know elderly people fall, they break their hips, they get an infection, they go to the hospital, they die. So if we could just do, increase the agility of uh, humans, people as they age, then we can reduce accidents. We can increase neurological function so this potentially could be a game changer. So we have a clinical trial in 2023 designed for Parkinson's patients, because they're the ones that, unfortunately, there's no medicines to help them. That's right. Uh, so we're designing these designing clinical studies to be able to test this. So I, I think it's a, it's a potential breakthrough. So that's the paradigm shift that I wanted to, to answer your question from the beginning.
2: Uh, how, have, uh, how have like studies about Alzheimer's in particular been? Psilocybin or any other mushrooms, for that matter, affect it.
1: Well, there's I populate a website for scientists and physicians. It's not branded, no advertising. Mushroomreferences.com. There is four clinical trials on lion's mane, one with Alzheimer's, one with progressive dementia, and it showed that the consumption of lion's mane mushroom mycelium, by the way, not mushrooms, not the fruit bodies. The mycelium is much more active. They mm-hmm. it was able to ameliorate the downslide uh, neuropathy as long as they took the lion's mane. When they stopped taking the lion's mane mycelium, then they reverted back into this neurodegeneration demonstration of behavior. So what we're doing by adding psilocybin, it just it actually helps regenerate neurons. And so we have found out, we found now these receptors that when we add niacin by itself, no stimulation and neuroregeneration, uh, lion's mane by itself, no stimulation, sulcine by itself, no stimulation, all three together, massive, massive stimulation. It's called the entourage effect. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so the entourage effect yes. of three of these together is causing this these map kinase receptor proteins to be activated, which then stimulate nerves to grow that's crazy and so mycelium
0: is kind of like the roots of a tree whereas the mushroom stem and cap are like the tree itself
1: yeah you can see the fruits of the tree is analogous to the fruit of the mycelium and the fruit of the tree is coming from the root-like structure but this is the thing to think about the mushrooms themselves are high in protein they're high in, you know polysaccharides beta-glucans they're a great source of nutrition but mycelium is different. There's an article that's published on reishi mushrooms that show that 25% more genes are activated in the mycelial state than in the mushroom state. It makes sense. It has to navigate through all this microbially hostile community. So it needs lots of immune defenses. At the end of its life cycle, the mycelium compacts into a mushroom, which is nutritionally dense. Mm. So for food... few exceptions here but mushrooms are nutritionally dense as foods mycelium is rich in the compounds that can upregulate your immunity and be able to help you better survive and you know isaac one of the things that
0: i know and maybe you could phrase this better than i but you had wanted to talk to paul about the i guess maybe sort of the analogous network expressions of mycelium Elsewhere, either in brains or in nature, in the stars,
1: or
2: yeah, the mycelium basically correct me if I'm wrong is uh, a neural pathway, right? It's like a it's, a it's its own brain.
1: That analogy is increasingly being substantiated. We know that electrical conductivity now in signaling through the mycelial networks, which I postulated decades ago, but this past year articles have been published just recently showing that these are neuroconductive. Uh, networks as well
2: i just today read something uh that was saying that they actually like the uh, the mycelium might actually use words to communicate with other other things which is uh i'm not sure how they get to that point to figure that out but they might be you any any insight on that
1: yeah the, the electrical impulses were disambiguated to i think they found uh 25 discrete word packets you might call them you know, again, we're guilty of trying to extrapolate our terminology exactly, yeah, yeah. to an or- organism that the, mm. the words
2: Anthropomorphizes. Just,
1: yeah, yeah, that's yeah. one of, that that was just recently discovered. I'm sure that the, the word bank of mycelium is going to be encyclopedic. Right. Um, because it's not mm. only just individual words. It's like when you put words into sentences. And as you mix these things up, there's crosstalk. And that's how our ideas are expressed. That's how I'm able to express my ideas right now. And so I think as we look at these networks, and especially when they put it be in contact with other microorganisms, this is where this collaboration or competition comes in. And the mycelium is so good at setting up guilds where these communities have in common their own mutual self-preservation. And so that's what I think is a lesson that we all need to learn is that communities survive better than individuals, and investing in communities, we actually invest in our own personal, self-serving survival, uh, because the long view is far more important than the short view.
2: Right. If I have a minute to ask a few questions. Please. One of the things that, uh, when I read the book, Mycelium Running, that I really, really loved about it and took away was, uh, you know, mushroom's ability to break down complex things, oils, uh, for instance, you know, like petroleum and things like kind of tear them apart on a molecular level and turn them into food. Right. That's correct. Um, and you, uh, you, you figured out you had, you know, like at that point in time, you debris sacks with mushrooms in them that you'd use to clean up various things. Logging roads would repair quicker. Damaged soils would go back to being uh, usable and healthy soils again. And did anyone like really like, like the Forestry Service or any any types of business that actually, you know, like, grab this. I, I
1: tried I tried to scale this. I taught lots of people how to do this. It's totally open source, and I wish, you know, and hope people may take advantage of this more. And people are. It's just breaking into the waste management industry as a Goliath that is a fortress that's protected. Mm-hmm. So, adaptation of these uh, has been slow. However... We received a grant from NASA on astromycology. Okay. Of, re- of Asteroids, I uh, have what's a material called regolith. Regolith is rich in hydrocarbons. So our work in breaking using oyster mushrooms to break down oil saturated soil with mm-hmm. the Battelle Laboratories. This got to be well known. So a group associated with NASA approached us. We received a grant with them um, and we were able to demonstrate that oyster mushroom mycelium will break down regolith. It breaks down the hydrocarbons. It splits the bonds, and it reconstitutes them as sugars, as polysaccharides, carbohydrates. Right. So the hydrocarbons are separated. They're recombined as carbohydrates, and these are sugars which drive life. So we now have two experiments successfully completed. We have a white paper, which will be coming out, but this idea that... Of taking mushrooms into this, in this space and astromycology now is quote unquote taken root and uh, I always wanted to be the, the one of the first astromycologists and so this is kind of a dream come true. That's great.
0: Well, wait a minute. Do you have a character on Star Trek named after you, Paul?
1: Yeah. yeah oh, really? I'm happy to say they did not kill off my character yet. An- Anthony Rapp does <laughs> an amazing job. I spent about two hours with the writers of Star Trek. They called me up say we're in the dungeon. We saw your TED Talk. We saw mycelium running. Do you have any ideas? And I said, turn on your tape recorder. And I, <laughs> I just you know, downloaded for an hour and a half. And I said, you can have all this information for free. I don't want any credit. You know, I'm a Star Trek lover. Science fiction can help. Science facts. The great thing about Star Trek is the acceptance of diversity, the prime directive, mm. quote unquote, and the idea that our diversity empowers us all. So I said, you have a great opportunity of helping young people formulate a better future. And then at the very end, I said, you know, I always wanted to be the first astromycologist. And they chuckled. And, uh, and then I got a contract, and I signed my life away and, on terms of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. And then they ended up creating a character after me. So I think I'm a lieutenant commander now, uh, Paul Stamets, on Star Trek.
0: Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets. I on, yeah, on, I got Star promoted.
1: <laughs> <So>. Wow. <laughs> yeah, when you're when you're uh, talking about
2: uh, the mycelium actually like breaking down oils, have, have has there been any work done on plastics? Or you know, there, that's a very tough uh, nut to crack. And uh, I didn't know whether there was any proof that mycelium was able to do that, or yeah, I
1: hope there are several uh, several endophytic fungi that have been discovered, I think one from the Costa Rica that breaks down plastic, it obviously takes longer. Uh, the, the microplastic pollution of our food chain is as dramatically threatening as climate change. It's a, it's a really huge issue and um, far better is it to design new plastics that will, fungi can more easily break down. Never underestimate the power of fungi the issue that we face is our timeline of our lifespan versus the evolution of these organisms to break down toxins. Will the remediation of those toxins with fungi be focused and powerful enough for us to observe it within our lifetime? that That's a challenge. Over hundreds of years, thousands of years, these fungi will break down all this shit. You know, I'm convinced of that. Uh, not Mm -hmm. you can't break down heavy metals you can chelate them and make them insoluble so i'm not saying you can break down heavy metals but all the pesticides herbicides all the petroleum uh, products ultimately they all are decomposable just finding out the best species for instance the united states has these massive oil reserves that we all know about those the oil cannot be stored for more than about two years the reason why is mold start mm. growing on the oil. Oh, no kidding. So that's how micro-remediation was first discovered, is that in anyone having oil sitting in their barn or something for 10 years, you go out there and there's mold growing over the oil, and it separates it from water into, right. into other components. So fungi break down all sorts of petroleum-based uh, uh, products, and most hydrocarbons, much more easily these chains of molecules used in plastic production are a lot more recalcitrant and much more difficult for those molecular bonds to be broken down. That's far out. Okay. Chernobyl, didn't they find
2: giant mushrooms like around that? And they were basically, you know, not able to break down the radioactive material, but uh, turned into very great ways to remove it from the soil
1: and kind of store it. In it's a- an amazing story is that in the remote cameras they had around the reactor that had melted down, over a million rads of radioactivity. This is lethal. They saw something beginning to grow on this concrete walls and it was a black mold. Now there's no light in there. And as they said in they sample, what was growing, it turned out as a species of fusarium, it's a mold and some other molds, but they produced melanin, the same pigment on your skin. They become dark upon sunlight. So this led to an extraordinary discovery is that mycelium can benefit from radiation and use it for metabolism in a way analogous that light is used by plants for photosynthesis. Okay. Hmm. Think of that. And the dark stars of the universe, fungi can use radioactivity for their life cycles, then they can break down regolith and hydrocarbons to generate soils for their organisms. I mean that that... I believe nature begets life, molecules code for single organisms, single organisms become strings of organisms, become chains, become networks, and that inevitably matter creates life. And I think we're in this vast continuum in this biomolecular universe, all of us are going to decompose, but we came from the decomposition of our ancestors. And the plants and animals prior to us. So we're all part of this nutrient recycling system. We will live forever. And I had an extraordinary psychedelic trip recently. And the one word that I got out of this trip, and the other trips I've had is like Paul, step up to the earth, be a warrior, you know, save the planet, etc. This was very different. It was just one word that I got. And the word was existence. We will always exist. Our atoms will always exist. Mm. Our atoms may reassemble into molecules in different forms. Can't remove anything from the universe. Yeah, we have a perpetuality of existence. It's just this form that we have is temporal. So it made me feel a lot better, mm. frankly, because I'm going to die, I've been told. So, no. It's nice, nice to know.
0: Well, guys, I cannot thank you both enough. This has been really incredible to have thank both you, you together. Both of you, too. Thank you,
1: thank, thank you, Matt. And a shout out to all you mus- all you musicians. When you are playing, you're not playing music just to the people in the audience. Nature is listening, and nature is listening through these vibrational filaments in the ground called mycelium. So you are you are you are noble messengers of goodwill that inspire not only people but enliven the ecosystem to give us more sustenance because we're all on this ship together. It's just that mycelium is one of the greatest pilots in the evolution of nature that we have.
0: See Isaac with Modest Mouse on the Lonesome Crowded West 25th Anniversary Tour happening this fall. Learn more about Paul's work in the Netflix documentary Fantastic Fungi or on his company's website, fungiperfecti.com. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, our mix engineer is Lou Carlozo. social media manager is Bailey Constis, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Lindsey Sharbo, Robin Loninen, Dana Erickson, Janelle Pagulayan, and Tobias Luong for their help with today's show. If you liked today's episode, please tell a friend about the show and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.